So, I'll just ask for any questions this morning. Yes. Um, Darby has a question. <laughs> Stand up and ask. She wants me to ask, though. Um, she sincerely wants to know how she can see the real Krishna. Because um, sometimes at preschool she chants, she says, you know why I'm chanting like this? Because I want to see the real Krishna. Can you tell him to come to my house? And I, so she wants to know how she can see the real Krishna, not just the deity or the picture. She really does. Is that true? Is that true? One time, there was a devotee of Lord Chaitanya named Goridas Pandit. He had the deities of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Nityananda Prabhu. Sometimes it's said that the first deity of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was the deity of Vishnu Priyadevi. Mahaprabhu had taken sannyas and left, ostensibly, apparently, he left Navadvip Dham. And so a deity was crafted in his likeness and brought before Vishnu Priyadevi one, two, and three times. And she, when she pulled her sari over her eyes in, sh- in shyness, then they knew, oh, they had made a likeness that, that struck her heart. Sometimes it's said that this was the, then the first manifest deity of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. But during his presence, there was also the deity of Gora Nityananda that was worshipped by Goridas Pandit. And that's in Godamandal also, the circle of Gore. So these are early deities. At any rate, on the one occasion, Gauranitananda visited Goridas, and he invited them in, received them, and worshipped them, and offered them prasad and so forth. And so the real Krishna, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who's not different than Krishna, and the real Ram, Balaram, in the form of Nityananda, came to his house. And there he had the deities on the altar. And so when it came time for them to leave, he didn't want them to leave, obviously, and he tried to keep them there. Mahaprabhu said, well, we're here in the form of the deity, so what's the problem if we leave? He said, no, I want you, (laughs) the real Chaitanya, (laughs) to stay here, both of you. So they agreed. And they went and stood on the altar, and the deities walked out. (laughs) (laughs) Then Goridas tried to keep the deities back, and then Mahaprabhu said, make up your mind. (laughs) 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 So, how do we see the real Krishna? Atashi Krishna Namadi Nabhavidgra Indre Sevan Mukhe Yijivadra. It's mentioned that not with material senses will we be able to see Krishna. And what are material senses? Well, material senses are those instruments through which we contact the world of sense objects, the world of sights and sounds and smells and tastes and so forth. And through that contact with the sense object, the senses are actually subtle, in a subtle body, we contact the gross material world and become implicated within it, identified with it. And that identification is one of, of an enjoying spirit that 
comes from seeing oneself as superior to matter, which is not untrue. We are, by constitution, superior to matter, but that's not the whole story. We're superior in constitution to matter, but nonetheless, matter has taken precedence over us. And that's because we're not acting in terms of what we really are. We are not the enjoyer. And although we may be superior in constitution to matter, it doesn't mean that it's meant for our enjoyment. That's only part of the picture. When we view ourselves as the subject and matter as the object, then it's apparent that we're superior. We lend our life to matter and it takes on a life. By lending our self-consciousness to matter, matter appears to come to life. We kind of turn it on, so to speak. We discussed this a little bit last night. So, again, we're obviously, in that sense, superior to matter. We're the subject, and matter is the object to be used by us as we see fit. It so appears. But if we look, rather than downward, figuratively speaking, if we look up, we find that there's a super-subject. We are a subject, matter is an object, but there's a super-subject that doesn't become troubled as we do in our attempts to act as the whole subject in relation to matter and enjoy it for our mentally conceived purposes. So this is Krishna then, super-subject. And if we look up, we see that just as matter is inferior to us, we are inferior to Krishna. We are like an object in relation to the super-subject, just like matter is an object in relation to ourselves, the subject, consciousness. So, then getting the whole picture, we see that we are not the enjoyer by nature, but we are to be enjoyed. As we were conceiving, matter was to be enjoyed by ourselves. We are to be enjoyed. So that's a radically different uh, way of looking at life. And uh, this verse I cited calls us to. Once I was in the Chaitanya Saraswat Mouth of Sridhar Maharaj and one of my godbrothers asked, he had come there from some distance and he asked Sridhar Maharaj if he could have any service. And Sridhar Maharaj thought for a minute and he said, try to change your angle of vision rather than just keep busy with something. And this is what he was, was getting at, the heart of it. This, try to change your angle of vision. Very radical idea. But this is what Padma Purana, I quote a verse for Padma Purana that Rupa Goswami cites in Bhaktura Samhita Sindhu. Sevan Mukhi Jivado. So to change the attitude is to change the vision. Why we cannot see Krishna? Indeed, even we worship the deity of Krishna, we tend to think that, you know, he has his room in my house. I've given the room for him in my house. I'll close the doors, I'll open the doors as I like. But to see Krishna, that is to have the have darshan, right? And darshan means really to be seen. So by being seen, we will see. By agreeing to be to being seen, to being an object, that means, that is seen to divine eyes, then we will see. 
Well, this is very much the opposite of the way we are going about life in general and sometimes somewhat opposite about how we go about even our devotional life, how we think we conceive of the deity. We still move in an ego kind of centric circle and we, we just include Krishna within it, something like that, who's our facilitator. So any way that he comes into the picture is good, but the whole idea is to, of Krishna's appearance is to take us outside of our frame of reference, which is so small, so narrow. The world of the mind is so small and so uncomfortable, and it's so unreasonable to insist, as we do sometimes by our actions, that everyone else would fit with inside it and be comfortable there when it's not even comforting to ourselves. The only thing comforting about the world of the minds with its happies and sads, goods and bads, gathered through the medium of the senses, all of which are relative, means mine are, are different from yours. We all have our sovereign domain, the world of the mind. The only thing that's comforting about it is the false comfort that we're big and important. We come out of it, we see how small we are, but we also see the one who is actually big and it's very comforting. He's very friendly. We meet him on friendly terms then. So changing this uh, whole angle of vision, the whole attitude, this is at the core of seeing. To see Krishna requires that we see ourselves as something that is to be seen. And the more we do that, then the real Krishna, who's standing on the altar, will talk to us. Like he did to Gauri Das Pandit. He's the real Krishna. And, of course, then we'll see him everywhere. As I was speaking a little bit last night, the idea is to, is to have a localized representation of the Lord, to focus our attention on Guru, Krishna, like this, such that if done properly, we can see that the object of our worship is actually universal. Understand? This is the vision of the, of the gopis. They saw him everywhere, everything reminding them of him. Their own Atma-Batman-Tejagat, one sees the world as one uh, sees oneself. The heart becomes filled with love for Krishna, then we see the whole world as if it is in love with Krishna. Everything reminding us of Krishna. The neophyte devotee thinks, I'm a devotee and doubts everybody else's status. And Uttamadikari attributes devotion to everyone except for himself. Just the opposite. Oh, if the worship is done properly in the temple, and again, as I say, when we go outside the temple, we should begin to see our deity universally. It's not just in one place, just in the temple. Sometimes people use it as an excuse for not going to the temple, but the purpose of going to the temple is to actually see in that way. And then what happens is there's never any moral lapse in our lives. Why the devotees suffer from moral lapses is because they fail to see the universality of their deity. Mahaprabhu taught us amanina manadena. Show respect to everyone, to everything. Bhaktivinoda emphasized jivadai. Kindness to all jivas, respect for all, all living beings, that our life will be permeated by a sense of regard and respect, reverence, worship, affection, 
ultimately, for everything seen in the proper light in relation to Krishna, which is its true position, you see. When we see through the eyes of, uh, we perceive, when we experience through the medium of the senses as an enjoyer, then we take the life out of the things that we perceive, that we experience, because they have a life in relation to Krishna. And when we see them exclusive of that, we deaden them. This is the nature. The mind is a dead thing. The senses are a dead things. So how they can perceive that which is alive, the soul or God. Rather, even if God should come into the picture, they try to make it, make him dead. They date him and, and uh, Krishna's appearance in the world is to take us beyond our frame of reference. We want to make fit him within our frame of reference, which is the whole problem. Our frame of reference is very small. And we have a life that's far bigger in prospect than our frame of reference. This is what the human life really tells us. In human life, it's just an extraordinary thing in nature. As I've said before, nature wakes up to the fact that it has a soul, that it has a life, that it's alive in the form of its manifestation as the human being. Material nature manifests the human form and it like wakes up from a dream, it wakes up to the fact that it's alive. As Descartes said, cogito ergo sum, I'm, I, I exist. I can think about it. This, this is unique to the human species. Extraordinary time we're living in. The human time, we are. <laughs> but it's only as valuable money or any wealth as a human life is a wealth as, as we spend it. So to spend it wisely, spend the human life wisely, that is, a, that is our task. We are not poor. We have human life, such wealth. You know that you exist. Now, our task is to know the extent to which we exist, which will end all fear, and the reason for which we exist. That can be realized in human life. The extent to which we exist, to what extent? Far greater than, we, than how we conduct ourselves, busy as we are, to preserve our existence, to protect it, to maintain it, so busy as if it were on death row. As if, as if it, we're making a constant plea for an extension of our life. As if all of the busyness that we find ourselves involved in, as if our lives, our existence depended on it. We appear to be threatened with the possibility of non-existence. So we don't know, we know that we exist, but we don't know the extent to which we exist. Yes? Our incorrect reference point is hiding our, or covering up our true existence, that reference of I, me, my, mine. If we get out of that, would it be helpful to view ourselves as an object, as if we were someone else? So instead of, we, we have a name, in this, a name to the body in this life, if we thought of, of ourselves not as this is my name, but this like, uh, as an object, he. Uh, am I making myself clear? Do you... I don't know. 
not really. So, sometimes devotees kind of do things like that. They say, you say, how old are you? You say, my body is this many years old or something. <laughs> Sounds a little odd, but is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that kind of, well... <laughs> and it's, it's, it's yeah, uh, yeah. To disidentify with this body, we say I'm a servant of Krishna, right? I mean, I think that's what is that yeah, what but, you mean? Yeah. To dis, disidentify, perhaps. Mahaprabhu so said. Disidentify with the sense of I, me, my, mine. Mm-hmm. That seems to be, uh, seems to uh, yeah. represent the uh, disease. My is the whole uh, identity. It's a very small word, but it's a big problem by my, that my is what we are. I mean, our, we are our, our desires and our sense of possession. What is ours defines us, materially speaking. But nothing is ours. That's what we're being shown. But we don't listen very well. So to come out of that, to know the extent to which we exist and to know why we exist. So why, why and why do we exist? That is the great message of Mahaprabhu for ananda, for happiness, for love, for joy, for no reason, in other words. That is beyond reason. So this is the, a great, the great opportunity of, uh, of human life. Nature wakes up to the fact it has a soul. We are experiencing that, that time, <laughs> that aspect of, of material experience, and met at the same time with the teaching of Mahaprabhu. So, What's our prospect so so great? We're wealthy. We've made so much progress. We're so fortunate. Mahabharu told Sanatana Goswami a nice story. He said, you're not poor at all. You're wealthy. You've been left a great inheritance, but you don't know about it. Man went to the astrologer and he was told, oh, he asked the astrologer about his future, and the astrologer told him, oh, you're very wealthy. When he was just a, a beggar, how can I say we say I'm wealthy? So, uh, a great inheritance has been left for you. You have to go and dig for that. Don't go to the north. Don't go to the south. Don't go to the east. Or don't go to the west. Only go to the east. Not by gyan, not by yoga, not by karma, but to the east, to the gods, the direction of the gods, to bhakti. You will find your wealth waiting for you. So, really, as human beings, we are like, consciousness is bursting beyond the limitations of material experience. And therefore, as I've said before, that's why, in human life, we want to fly in the sky. We want to go to the depths of the ocean. We want to climb the highest mountain. We want to do all these things. I mean, there are elks and deers and mooses that climb the highest mountains and so forth. For us, it's, it's, it's difficult. There are birds that fly very high in the sky. You know, it took us a long time to figure out how to get up there <laughs> and, uh, and to go to the bottom of the ocean and so forth. Why are we doing all these things? Because there's a sense that arises in human life as to what our nature really is and that all such possibilities lie within the soul, that it can exist anywhere, in any space. It is. There are birds. Consciousness is flying high in the sky and consciousness is living deep in the ocean limited only by those forms of life. In the human form of life, all, we sense that all these things are possible for us, so we try to do them. But with good help, we can understand that we need to make a little adjustment in order to realize that potential. 
and this is the adjustment to stop looking at the world as if it is the object and I'm the subject through the filter of the mind which is a dead thing and then makes it seeing in that way takes the life out of everything it, nothing is comfortable being seen like that and manipulated like that so it doesn't show its full self to us so the, the wonder, the adbuta, the chamatkar of, of, of reality is not apparent to us. So, the great sin of boredom in human life. So, Krishna consciousness, where is it? Where is that Krishna who speaks? Mahaprabhu heard him speaking from in the, in the grass. Why aren't you humble like us? In the trees. Why aren't you tolerant like us? Why don't you show mercy to others? You know, the whole world became alive. Nature, you know, through nature, God is speaking to us. The real Krishna is also speaking to us. As the sun takes its flight across the sky every day. Udyanastan chayanaso. Tasyarti achanonit uttama slokavartaya. Ayurharati vaipumsam. The sun is moving across the sky. We're looking as beautiful, but we don't hear what it's saying. We don't even we don't even notice it really. Well, I mean, what could be more more of a powerful influence on our lives than the rising of the sun every day? But busy as we are, largely in an industrial society, we don't even notice that it came up, that it went down. What to speak of what it's saying to us? Ayurharati, it's saying, your time is limited. <laughs> You've got a great opportunity. Take advantage of it. Don't waste your time. Ayurharati Vaipum Sun is rising and setting. The sun is taking away the life of everyone. Except those who are engaged in Harikata. That is a whole different approach to life. This should be the result of worshipping the deity. That in, in time and paying attention to our Guru, the, the, the universal nature of the object of our devotion becomes apparent so then we our lives are not separate our life is over here bhakti over here it's something else no it becomes integrated and that's why i like to say when you have the opportunity to, to make a sacrifice then you should see oh this is where is the absolute where is krishna where is krishna the real krishna gita says that brahman and krishna is brahman is situated where? Acts of sacrifice. Yes. In acts of sacrifice. So, we have the opportunity every day to make sacrifices. To let somebody else go first. Whatever it is. The smallest thing. Somebody drops a dollar. We could pick it up and keep it. Or we could find them and give it back to them. All these kind of little things happen to us every day. These are opportunities to grow in terms of acts of sacrifice in, in real real life. And um, even if the object for which we sacrifice is not the perfect object of love, and love and sacrifice, they go together, and sacrifice is at the heart of love. Sacrifice is, is kind of the beginning of, of the pain of consciously giving and giving up as a result of it, it turns to love when the pain, which time the pain disappears, the calculation disappears, 
This, of course, Mahabharata was teaching. Even Vaikuntha, the great Vaikuntha, his calculated sacrifice. Of course, the calculation is it should be done for God because he's God. Vrindavan, that they're giving without any calculation. In fact, by calculation, they shouldn't be giving. They should be doing something else. They're only going to church on Sunday, really. And everybody's absorbed in love with Krishna. They're worshipping Narayan. What they love is for Krishna. <laughs> it's just like ordinary people. <laughs> but Krishna is not ordinary. So, even if, in other words, in ignorance, we make an act of sacrifice, we give to an object that is less than the perfect object of love. Krishna is the perfect object of love. Krishna is the perfect taker. Because as much as he takes, that much more is returned to the giver. We can give perfectly and completely only when we locate the perfect receiver, the perfect enjoyer. That's why our Goswami's charges have emphasize this point, Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, Prabhupada, to the point of, you know, you, you think from an English editing point of view, a little bit redundant here, Krishna, the Supreme Personality of God, Krishna, the Supreme Personality. But it's not an attempt to make a literary masterpiece, it's to, to make a point, drill it into your head. This is the principal, you know, Paribhashlok of the Bhagavatam, one line, Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, whole tattva is expanded from that. Prabhupada is inserting it again and again and again. Krishna, the Supreme Personality of God. And Krishna, the Supreme Personality of God. Amsarvasya Prabhu, Matasarvam Pavartate. Know this, Krishna says, my Supreme Position. Then, what is the next line? Buddha Bhava Samanvita. Then you can do that kind of worship that the Brajabhasis are doing. First, locate me. Identify me for who I am. I can take unlimitedly. If you've understood all the secret of life is giving, then here's where to give. Give to me. The gopis, you know, they they took him up on the challenge. And they gave to a standard that uh, caused Krishna to have an identity crisis. I'm the supreme enjoyer, supreme lover. But they have loved in a way that's that I don't even I don't have experience of. Well, who am? Am I really the supreme lover? He had a, this is like an existential crisis of the absolute. This gives rise to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to resolve the whole thing. He's tricky, that Krishna. So he figured out a way. <laughs> He's a pretty balanced guy. He figured out a, a, a way. So. The absolute truth is situated in acts of sacrifice. Therefore, as I say, if we make sacrifice, even if it's in ignorance, in other words, even if it's not directed, reposed in the perfect object of love, it will nonetheless bring us closer to the perfect object of love. The, the feeling of happiness, of fulfillment that we get from giving to an imperfect object comes more from the absolute who's situated in acts of sacrifice than it does from the object itself. You understand? If you figure it out, you see where, where it's coming. Then you can universalize your love for your children, for example. So when you do something nice for your children and you make some sacrifice and you feel happy, fulfilled, from, this is where it's coming from. 
then you learn you learn from that oh you learn the secret the lady lost her son a devotee lost her son and wrote to me she'd been he was 17 16 years old he died in the car accident with some other boys and she couldn't get over it for a year and so I tried to explain what it was to her what what it was that was fulfilling so fulfilling in her life about her son what is it and then, you, by doing that, you can, as I say, you know, theoretically at least, universalize that and, and remain in touch with that, with Krishna. So, yeah, he's not just standing there on the altar as a stone, can't talk. No, but if you worship properly, and if you worship properly, then you come to see that, oh, this, this is the, the portal, so to speak. Like I said, it's a still picture of the Leela. And of course the Leela is a bit otherworldly, but it's also Leela, Shristi Leela, so the Leela of creation, to see it in the proper light. It means to bring the whole thing to life, therefore Vishwana Chakravartitaka said Vishvam Purnam Sukhayate. He saw the world as an abode of happiness. Vishvam Purnam Sukhayate. The world is filled with happiness. When seen, it means through this eye of being seen. You have to join the ranks of, of the object object world, so to speak. As a conscious object, it's very tricky. <laughs> As a conscious object, and be seen and be used by Krishna for his purpose. Then the full potential of our life is realized. And all things, the life of all things, as I say, it brings everything to life. That's why we hear in Vrindavan, everything is alive. Why? Because nobody wants anything. I mean, there are trees that give anything, right? Kalpa Briksha, Kamadenu, the cows give whatever you want. You think, what a great place to go. Well, I'm going to go there. But then you stop and think, why the people don't want anything here? You could get anything you want from that tree. They're only interested in one thing, love of Krishna. That's the real wealth. Yes? It seems like a lot of um, devotees fall into a pitfall of trying to give and sacrifice beyond what's really balanced in their lives, like time. And, you know, they may, anybody makes requests, they feel like, oh, I need to, to honor this request, or some people ask for money, or I need to give money, and to the point where they feel depleted and they feel... They begin to feel resentful because they don't have the resources yet. Because it's because of their advancement, it doesn't. They're not quite advanced enough to be giving on that kind of a level. So, can you speak something to that? Because it seems to be a very common issue of devotees being balanced and they're sacrificing, they're giving as they mature in their Krishna consciousness. Well, they should study, and, and, and as I would like to quote sometimes, Bhaktivinoda quotes Bhagavatam, 11th canto, in a nice way, an important verse there, that um, knowing one's position is real beauty. It's sometimes used for like not jumping ahead kind of thing. So we have to hear about the highest ideal, and we have to be able to locate ourselves on the map at the same time, and then proceed accordingly. If you want to go to India, then you read about it. You go to a travel bureau and you read about 
India and you want to go there and you get excited <coughs> and everything like that, still you know, well, I've got to go, I've got to go to work, I've got to get extra money and I've got to purchase the ticket, I've got to take time off and secure that and get the, all this power, power to secure time off, power to, to pay for the ticket, take the time to fly over there and so forth. And, and then when I get there, I have to stop being a tourist if I want to really be there and acclimate and be one of the, like the local people. And so, it's two things, I think, that there's inappropriate asking that goes on from persons who aren't, who don't understand the theory, and then there's inappropriate giving by those who don't understand the theory. In other words, those who ask should know how to ask that you give. They can give the talk and say we should give everything, and then when you come forward with your, your paycheck, they should say, well, have you paid your mortgage <laughs> this month? Are you sure? They should have the sense to, to stop people from giving also. Those who ask, beggars, means like the sannyasi, they're supposed to be beggars. Mahabharata taught this himself personally. One of his followers was giving away too much money, didn't have any living. Mahabharata put somebody else in charge. You take charge of him, manage his money, don't let him give it all away. Householder needs some money. So it's not the business of the sannyasis just to be... I remember one guy, one fellow was a sannyasi, and he, one of his students got a big inheritance. And he complained that he's, my student's more wealthier than I am. <laughs> he's got more money, he's keeping more money than, than, than I've got. I mean, the student should give something, but... That's true. But the idea of the sannyasi is not just collect a bunch of money and be comfortable either. In the name of Yukta Bhairagya, again, Yukta Bhairagya, I spoke about it last night, I want to mention again what it, what it used to mean before Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati talk were uh, extracted from it, a dynamic meaning, and applied it in such a way that we are all here today. It used to mean, Yukta Bhairagya means that don't give up things that can be used in Krishna's service. It means don't give up taking prasadam. Don't reject the garland of the Lord when it comes, as if it's material. And the devotees, like Guru said, just see us in Bhagavatam. Just see what is our position, the devotees. Simply by wearing the dress of Krishna that's been retired by him, we will, we will be liberated. Who is he talking to? All these taggies, ganies, and their austere practices and efforts to be liberated. And he says, fie on them. We will just wear the garland of, of Krishna and liberation will come automatically. And they are, they're rejecting these things. It's saguna. This is the idea. It, it wasn't like use everything in Krishna's service. And so Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur did something like that. It's like, like I said, riding in a motor car and all these things. But then who was he? That's why he would also do that Chaturmasya Brat, where he would for four months eat with his hands behind his back and like this, lean down as much as he could eat in one leaning and come back up and all he would eat with the habisha, you know, that means like kitri without any spices. For four months, he could ride in a motor car. <laughs> and not be distracted like look at me in my motor car <laughs> that doesn't mean we should all run out and get a BMW or something like that. 
Krishna's service. And you have to see how much, <laughs> how much you're being used by the thing and how much you're using the thing in Krishna's service. So sometimes there's inappropriate asking. And then when there's inappropriate asking, then people, misinformed as they are in that system, they may be engaged in inappropriate giving. Mahaprabhu, every householder should have some money. So those sannyasis should ask, but they should also they should be like the children of the households, but like the parents also. It's very unique. A little bit of both. Like children maintained by the sannyasis, but sometimes children are wise too. So they say, you've got enough. Make sure you have enough for your needs. So they should be, the beggars should educate everyone like that appropriately. That's important. So if they don't have a proper understanding, then that's the, the genesis, perhaps, of that kind of problem. They should be instructing them on that level as well, when not to give. And then the givers, who have the havers, <laughs> rather than the beggars, I guess, then they should, um, of course, they should give and... Uh, be sensible. They should understand what their position is, what their responsibilities are, and so forth, and, and not get like psychotic about it. It's, it's kind of a first-generation thing here, you know. That's very. You know, we live in like I used to say, like a credit card society. So we want to purchase immediately. It sounds great. I'll take it. Krishna consciousness. Take it all. I'll be a sannyasi tomorrow. <laughs> and some people, Indian people, going like, "Oh, really? Whoa." It's kind of in their their blood or something like you know for generations they have a different sense about it, <laughs> and then when you can't really pay for it, and they go, oh problem, <laughs> just see. So, yeah, that's verse that I cited to Bhaktivinoda that I rendered like that. True beauty is knowing your place. So, hmm? yeah, yeah, it's becoming. Knowing your places and, and not knowing your place is unbecoming. It's ugly. You're out of place. You don't act like that here. <laughs> Something like that. So, yes. Last night you were talking about the, I guess, sort of the role of the guru with disciples, taking information from scriptures and trying to apply it in a dynamic way, or teach the disciple how to apply it to their personal life? And does that sort of go along with helping them to decide or show them how much would be reasonable for them to, to give. attempt to give in that sense? Uh, I know I understand yeah. the idea, and I'm trying to understand the idea of thinking for myself, for example, but at the same time with so much out there um, and being sort of new to all of this, I don't know, you, you want someone that you can put your faith in and say, okay, I'm not going to just blindly follow whatever they say, but at the same time, have faith in, in what they say. And, and of course, ultimately, make the own, my own decision. But. Well, I think that, um, that you know, the proper teacher will teach us to, he, he wants to see or she wants to see that we think for ourselves, but that we also know how to think. So sometimes you may have to say, don't think because you don't know how to think. And then he spent some time teaching you how to think, and then he would like to see that you could think within the parameters of what is Gaudiya Vaishnavism, 
not a very happy, he's a thinking person, but he might have to tell you to stop think. Probably he's going to tell us to stop thinking for a while. Stop thinking, please. <laughs> hmm. But in time, then, it's not to remain like that. So there's some place like that, just sit and listen, learn, and, and so forth. So you should then learn and then show that, and that will be some, there's be some dynamism to that, some, if it's understood. Because every situation, every moment is unique, so to apply the theory and the insight and so forth in each moment is a new thing. So, I don't know if I'm answering your question or I, or I fully understand it, but um, it does the guru's service extend into telling you how much to give it? Yeah, in a way. He tells you to give completely, and then if he sees that you're giving too much and, and that's not going to be good for you, then he says, don't give that. Keep, keep that. Be sensible. So, you know, in your stage, better to make a mistake. If you have a good guide, then he'll correct you. I guess that's a, that was my really my question is, is that something reasonable to, to expect or to desire from the guru? Um, you mentioned at the beginning of your comment where you're sort of responding to Anshan's question um, that this, this person needs to, to read scripture and understand, but at the same time, is it okay to sort of want to have someone else who's much more learned yeah. help? Yeah, <laughs> sure it's you? okay. It's very much okay, yeah. Anyway, you have a good understanding, but in the beginning, the balance will be greater on the side of hearing and having someone think a bit for you. But you have to be able to think that this person is fit for thinking about me. At least you have to do that, yeah. right, with some understanding. So, in the, yeah, in the beginning, it'll be more like that. And then the, the difference will be in the end, see, that, that you will have imbibed so much, so... You'll be your own person, but in the full sense of the term. Your own personal self now, that's a different thing that we have to deal with, that we have to change, right? So how much is that personal self going to be involved in the equation of thinking for himself? It's, it's an interesting, it's the you know balance. But in that, we need guidance so we can see if we're doing it in the right way or not. It's not that you enter in and all of a sudden you're, you know able to think entirely for yourself. Like you said last night, you want to be able to sort of lay it all out and say, okay, I'm doing Yeah, I like to say that, you know, that you should give your fun money, but you should also have some fun. <laughs> That's also part of the Bhagavad Gita that says that. So all the fun money. Of course, you know, as Krishna consciousness becomes more the fun of your life, the joy of your life, then it will consume it. But... Krishna says you should be balanced in eating and sleeping and working and in fun, in recreation. So there's some scope for that also. But gradually, and until Krishna consciousness, we start there. It should be part of your fun. <laughs> and eventually you become you know, more the fun of your life, the joy of your life, the preoccupation of your life, so that all the fun money will go for Krishna consciousness and then the impetus to, to do anything other than fun things <laughs> that is Krishna's work, planting Tulsi, worshipping the deity, and so that will start to evaporate. Then you'll be comfortable 
in a situation where only Krishna's work to be done. And in that environment, then eventually, then, then you can internalize, internalize, and and, and live in in the fun world, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. I was thinking kind of about that question in terms of the Tadvadi Paripatena, you know, kind of a submission, inquiries, and service, and kind of a kind of a dynamic submission, you know, we've, we've talked about that, and, you know, submission, you know, in terms of also friendship, but submission, and how sometimes a submission can kind of overshadow your thinking, because you're so hung up in the submission part that you, you're not able to really think. You think, well, it means, spiritual life means all the past is finished, and, and I have to be a new person, and so you don't even use common sense in the name of submission. So it seems like you know some kind of a dynamic submission. Anyway, thinking in terms of that verse, that uh, I think you have confidence. Submit, and a competent guru will tell you, "Hold on here. So it takes you know. There's more to it than that. No, you can't come and live with me at, right now. <laughs> Something like that. Like it said, Prabhupada built a house everybody could live in, but somebody's got to help us find which room we fit into <laughs> in that house." Because it was, you know, everybody was kind of running in, and everybody in one room doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so on this, my service, yeah, I'm trying, try, not trying to recreate the house that everybody can live in. That's that's not possible. It's beyond my capacity. But it can help locate you in the room that you're supposed to be in, while you'll be comfortable. Yes. I was telling Jim and I were having this discussion on Sunday, and I was telling you an example that you gave of um, Shri Maharaj and Bhakti Siddhanta had asked him to go to the West, and he mm. said, "I'm willing to do that, but first I want you to hear the reasons why mm-hmm. I don't think I'm a good person." And from that, Bhakti Siddhanta changed his his idea to go to spirit. Right. Yeah. So, uh, therefore, submissive inquiry. Whatever you say, Guru, that is fine. But if you would like to consider this, then people would like that very much. Intelligent consideration. Uh-huh. As I say, Prabhupada said he suffered from lack of any advice. Is that letter that you referred to from, from Prabhupada Shudamarsh, is that in the letters? or? Not? Oh, yeah, I think so. I guess it was a letter to Shudamarsh. I have to. I never looked it up, but yeah, I was wondering because I sometimes look to find all the letters, but that seems like an important one. That point. I, I what did he say? I have no good guidance or something. I have no one to advise me. These people are not competent. It means even a good disciple will have advice with a guru. He will think Guru Dev has invested so many things in me. Now he's asking for that, so I give him that advice. Yes, Guru Dev. Because where I'm made of my guru's mercy, so if I have any good idea, it must be coming from him. Now he's put it in the file of my heart. Now he's calling on it. So what do you think? Oh, then you give. Mm-hmm. And he considers that. Not exactly like Uddhava, but. Yeah. Prabhupada used to say, "My children, my grandchildren are coming, but not my children." It meant that he was seventy, you know, plus years old and. 18, 19, 20-year-olds were coming, not 50-year-olds. 
Now, we all know the difference, most of us anyway, between 20 and 50, or pretty close to it, 18 and 50. You've got something to offer just from living in the world, some experience, but didn't have that wealth in his movement. And he felt some lacking in that, in that regard. So my grandchildren are coming, he said, but not my children. <laughs> you know, it's not like Prabhupada was just an omniscient being who came to the world with a plan all written down. Everything is going to happen just like this. If you think like that, you don't understand Krishna consciousness. Krishna consciousness is alive and dynamic. It's every, every moment is unique in how to apply oneself. It's, that's why it's exciting. You can't put rain on Krishna. If anyone has, it's, it's, it's Radha, but you know, she's himself also. Two bodies, one soul. He's Swarat, fully independent. And probably would do that. He, you know, largely, he, he ran his mission as far as he could in that way. He would think, like, I gave Harinam to these people. They're chanting. They're worshipping. They must have some love for Krishna. So if they say something, it must have some value. So someone would say, Prabhupada, I think there should be a temple in, in Germany. And he would say, Shivananda, go and start a temple. Start a temple. Yes. Tamal Krishnamar said, I think, you know, I'd be better off in China. Yes. Krishna has spoken to China. We don't have a temple in China. Krishna wants, that's what this is all about. Krishna wants you to go to China. We figured it out. Krishna's will has been, you know, manifest. And sometimes he would say, you know, he would, check himself, like when he said, I was there in Los Angeles once, and, and, and after the Prabhupada would give the class, and there would be a kirtan, and, and Brahmananda Maharaj was there, and he did, was doing this two-step, like, one, two, one, two, like this. Everybody just was going with him like that. And afterwards, Prabhupada said, and I saw Brahmananda, he was dancing, and I thought, he's got the bhav. Then I realized, oh, it was just a concoction. <laughs> So, you know, he was, he was like, but generous in his thinking. So they're all involved in Krishna consciousness. We're all devotees, right? We're all experiencing the same thing, right? Like when sitting at the airport and, and all that, Prabhupada was sitting on a, what was it? Prabhupada was sitting on a seat. Everyone was sitting on the floor or something yeah, like that. Then somebody said something to one of the devotees, one of the people at the airport, and then he said, in an announcement, all the devotees should stand up and, uh, and, and move, because they were all sitting on the floor, I guess, blocking the aisle. So Prabhupada stood up and he said, no, not you, Prabhupada. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a devotee? <laughs> you know, just living in that. And it, really, Prabhupada, shut everyone's reasoning down by his bhava. He shut their reasoning down. They couldn't reason. He didn't allow them to think. Then when he saturated them with his, his ecstasy, and so they, you know, they did the crazy things, that we did the crazy things that we did <laughs> under that influence. And along those same lines, I was thinking about um, an interesting point of um, how... When you when you get the name from the guru, he's sharing his faith. Faith, yes. So that's an interesting. I mean, just thinking in terms of the Ritvik people or whatever, and taking that, trying to take that away somehow. But just the idea of 
Yeah, and that is a doctrine that none of them would have accepted themselves. I could see how people could get distracted by that, given the, the abuses and so forth, and gravitate towards what seemed like safe ground. But to foster one's own experience of having a guru on others and not allowing them to have the direct experience of a guru is a bit of a stretch. And it's something that, that I don't know any of Prabhupada's disciples who would have settled for something like that themselves, personally. I mean, I understand it. The, the good intentions even behind that, but it is a confused doctrine. So, what else? Yes? Oh, I was thinking of, we were talking shit about Krishna and the Vishnu in him killed the demon. Mm. So, um, in Gita, when he says that um, Paritranaya Sadhunam, mm-hmm. how he comes for two reasons to protect the devotees and annihilate the miscreants and to establish Dharma. Mm-hmm. Is that Vishnu and Dwarka Krishna? Dwarka Krishna speaking the Gita. Yeah. Um, to be more technical and precise, would we be to say the uh, Parthasarathi Krishna? But yes, in the terms of the three divisions of the Leela, Vrindavan, Mathura, Dwarka. Krishna comes from Dwarka. Dwarka is Krishna. Do that battle. And, uh, yeah, when he speaks there, and then he's speaking about the, the role of the Yuga avatar. He says, in every Yuga I come. Right. Sambhavami, Yuge, Yuge. Which, what does that mean to us then? Sambhavami, Yuge, Yuge. He says, I come in every Yuga. That means there must be a Yuga avatar for Kali Yuga, which is disputed. Sarvabhambhattacharya concluded there was no Yuga avatar for Kali Yuga. When Gopinath tried to tell him that Mahaprabhu was was Krishna himself. He said, there's no avatar in Kali Yuga. His name is Triyuga. He only comes in three yugas. This is some, so when we hear that verse, we think, oh, that means Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is coming in Kali Yuga. Yes, he's come. But then he coming in terms of the, as the Yuga avatar, giving Namsan Kirtan. But because in this particular descent, the time for the Yuga avatar's appearance coincided with Krishna's existential crisis, that Yuga Avatar and his message of Namsan Kirtan, his method, is such that it not only gives deliverance, but it gives us the competence to conquer Krishna, which is what the Brajalila is about. It gives praying, therefore it's, Kaviras Goswami says, it's that Yuga Dharma, the Nam is woven with a wreath of praying. He combined the two together. So Krishna in Gita, when he says that, yes, that's Krishna as the avatar, like Brahma prayed for Krishna to come and and uh, help with the disturbance on the earth and so forth. Just before that, in the same chapter, Krishna says, Jajatamam prapadyante tamsatayvabhajamiham. He's saying, I'm, I'm Rasaraj. What comes after that? He says, so many nice things there in that section. Sambhavami Jugeju, Paritranayasadunam The real purpose of Krishna's descent is Paritranayasadunam, to assuage to the pain. What protection do devotees need? What is the pain in a devotee's life? Separation from Krishna. So there are sadhakas in this world whose sadhana has reached the point that they're actually feeling the pain of separation from Krishna. He comes for them. That's why he comes, because Krishna's really only 
directly relating with them. In every other instance, he's relating through expansion of himself as Paramatma or this or that, avatar and so forth. Krishna's Atmaram, so he only takes pleasure in himself. When his Swarup Shakti comes in the heart of one, then and he goes there, so to speak. So, the primary purpose of Krishna is to give protection to the devotees. The secondary purpose in the Yuga Dharma is to establish the Dharma, which involves also uh, annihilating the demonic elements and so forth. So the two sides of Krishna are there in one sense in that verse. And it seems that in Vrindavan he killed those that came there, but in like Dwarka it seemed like he was killing demons a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, Shalva and Kavakra and the king of Kashi and, you know, Shishapal. And, mm-hmm. and in Vrindavan... And, the, and when did the inhabitants of Vrindavan hear about him in Dwarka killing the demons? Do they... Are they not attracted to that aspect, right, of him? They're not so attracted to that, right. They can hardly even think of him outside of Vrindavan. You see, in Braj, in Vrindavan, and Krishna is just performing his leela. There are some outside elements that come in that have the appearance of his establishing dharma, but it's, it's not anywhere near like Kurukshetra or what goes on in Dwarka, Mathura. When any demon is killed in Vrindavan, also you find there's a wonderful result. Putin's body turned aromatic when they burned. And description of the killing of Denukasur and his associates, throwing them up into the trees. If you read it, it's just everything becomes wonderful. Yeah. So, I mean, everything he does is wonderful, but whenever he does anything that is overtly godly, which is not so wonderful because he's God anyway. So it's not so wonderful. When he acts like he's not God and human-like and he's completely captivated and and manipulated and charmed and overwhelmed by the love of his devotees, that is wonderful. That is the most wonderful thing. So whenever anything lesser is manifest in Vrindavan, some Aishvarya, some godless is lesser in a sense, some killing of a demon or something like that. Then they, they attribute that to the fact that Gargamuni gave the blessing that this son will be like Narayan. So they mean that Narayan will do some wonderful things through him sometimes. And then they separate it out. That's, that's Narayan doing that. He's actually my son. He's my friend. And when it showed super extraordinary opulence to Brahma, only Brahma was present in Vrindavan. When he showed all those Vishnu boys boys were hiding in a cave and he was in the forest alone with Brahma he showed all it would be a disturbance to everybody if he showed that when Indra came to apologize Krishna took him to a private place so all the gods could pay their obeisance to him it would be a disturbance in Vrindavan someone else had a question? Yes. you were saying how Krishna is situated in acts of sacrifice and uh, we always have opportunities like every day you know how we used to think or uh, sometimes I still do, like how by engaging in sacrifice of non-devotees, for non-devotees, then I'm facilitating their sense gratification. Like, say I'm driving, and, um, you know, 
uh, let someone go in front of me, and I think I should go in front of them because my work is more important <laughs> than their work, and I'm just facilitating them to get to sense gratification faster. Or like you said, you know, if they dropped a dollar, we used to think, well, I'm going to take that dollar and give it to Krishna so they can make spiritual advancement because they're just going to use it for their degradation. So, you know, um, but this is a really wonderful concept to think how we're constantly given opportunities to make a sacrifice. But then, like, how about like that for non-devotees, like to facilitate you know what I mean, or not to facilitate their degradation by serving them. Well, it isn't our business to interfere with the, their will other than by offering them the opportunity to exercise their will in relation to Krishna. It's not a forced thing. It's not like you'll cut them off and get ahead of them and they'll get Sukriti because <laughs> <laughs> something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can't just stuff Krishna consciousness down the throat. I'm a devotee. Get out of my way. And, then, and then read the book and then you'll know why. I just ripped you off because <laughs> nothing belongs to you. I mean, it's not going to be too convincing. When your heart changes and you become soft and you see, it's a question of seeing. You're seeing them pursuing sense gratification, but it's, it's just really an angle of vision. Great devotees aren't seeing that everybody's just running after sense gratification. Great devotees are seeing everybody serving Krishna. You've got to try to catch that vision. They're seeing everything moving according to the will of Krishna. There's no problem. <laughs>